I've told you before that one of my favorite uh, modern day websites is a website called the Babylon Bee. Babylon Bee is not, uh, it's, it's not real news. It's, uh, I guess, in today's modern climate, some would call it fake news, but it's actually satire. It's written as comedy, just kind of poked fun at things. And uh, one of the headlines that I, uh, I saw this past week and it immediately resonated with me is this. Pastor sneaks in second sermon into closing prayer. Uh, we've all been there, right? <laughs> uh, the sermon kind of goes long, and then the pastor starts praying, and yeah, it's, uh, it goes for a little bit longer than you think. They actually write these, uh, these articles to go along with them. It says, During his closing prayer at Grace Methodist Church on Sunday, local minister Shane Valentino managed to preach an entire bonus sermon, including an introduction, three sermon points, and a, con- a concluding call to faith and repentance, witnesses confirmed. As the congregation closed their eyes and bowed their heads, they expected to beseech the Lord together, but quickly realized Valentino was actually preaching rather than leading a corporate prayer. When he began quoting several Bible commentators and mentioned he'd be moving on to a second point, we realized we'd been hoodwinked, longtime church member Bethel Pearson told reporters. But it was too late. We were committed at that point, and it'd be weird to open our eyes and slip out to Denny's for lunch, I guess. <laughs> Uh, if there's been a book thus far that I've said, oh, I wish I could just take at least two Sundays uh, and have two messages, it is the book of Isaiah. Uh, because these 66 chapters uh, are a rich dive into the series, this whole idea of understanding the story of God. It's the first major prophet that we'll go through, and major is not an indication of importance, it's just a length. And after we get done with the book of Isaiah, you'll understand why he's called a major prophet. Uh, and so last summer, uh, I read a book called Saving the Bible from Ourselves. It's a really good book. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I, can, I can't let you borrow it. It's, it's on my iPad. But, but uh, it's really good if you want to pick it up. Saving the Bible from Ourselves. And it brought out the ways that we tend to misread the Bible. And how in actually misreading the Bible, we actually fall prey to the strategies of the enemy uh, because we come up with doctrines that aren't real doctrines. Um, and, and if you want a, 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 if you want a great understanding of how this works, just look at the televangelist from Louisiana who asked uh, for 50 more, 50 more million dollars, $54 million to buy a Falcon 7X jet uh, this past week because the Lord told him to, right? Well, how do you get to that point? This is how you get to that point. You misread Scripture, and you begin to interpret it in ways that it was never meant to be interpreted. And you begin to apply texts specifically and directly to you that may not really even be about you. And even some of you, you hear that right now and you're thinking, what? Because you, maybe you're like me. Before this series, like this series has rebuked a lot of the ways that I typically approach God's Word. And that's what this book brought out last summer. Understanding the Bible begins with knowing the full story of God. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, God's past work defines his present purposes and his future promises. God's past work, what he's revealed to us in his word, it defines his present purposes. What is God doing right now? If you want to know what God's doing right now, look at what he's done. Okay? If you want to know what God's doing right now, look at what he's done. And if you want to have assurance for the future, you can't manufacture that. Look to God's Word, because God's Word not only defines where He's going in the present, but what He's promised for your hopefulness in the future. This series is challenging you to break out of 
this kind of individualistic approach of reading the Bible that I call, I call the life application method. Now, let me make it very clear. I, my first, one of my first Bibles was a life application Bible. There's nothing wrong with a life application Bible. There's nothing wrong with applying the Bible to your life. In fact, that's a major part of what we do Sunday after Sunday in Sunday school and in messages. We want to apply the Bible to our lives. That's extremely important. However, th- this idea of the life application Bible study method just simply means that when I come to God's Word and I open it up, the first thing that I ask, no matter where I'm reading, is how does this apply to me? That's the first thing I ask. That's not the right question to start with. Who is God? What is God doing? Why is is God moving in this way in that time in Israel or in... uh, Colossae or in Corinth or whatever. Like, we need to understand the story, namely his story, before we can apply his story to our story. Because his story defines our story. And so we need to, we need to understand who God is, what he loves, and what his goal is. One of the main things that I could communicate to you is that your purpose in coming to God's word is to be transformed by it in the presence of God, rather than you just looking for simple points about how you can be a better person. That's an extremely important distinction when it comes to how we approach God's Word. Am I submitting myself up under it? Am I humbling myself as I come before it and letting it be God's Word that is about Him first and foremost? In another good book I've read recently called, called Restoring All Things, John Stone Street and Warren Cole Smith, they say this. They say, the Bible, is not mere, or, the Bible is not or not merely a book about how to have a better life or how to handle life's problems. The Bible is a book that explains the universe and how God is in the process of redeeming and restoring it to its original good, true, and beautiful state. You see, God's the one who created this world, and God's the one who one day will recreate this world. God is the one who has redeemed uh, this world, and God is the one who is working through the church right now to restore this world. But this, His work did not start with us, and it most likely won't be finished by us. We are a blip on the screen of history. Not just, not just we as individuals, yes, that's true, but even we as a church family. This church, the next big anniversary that this church will celebrate is 200 years of existence. 200 years. That's incredible, right? But that's a blip in the entire scheme of God's purposes, is it not? When we approach God's Word, we're dealing with the God of the ages who has, who has worked in us and through us for our time And yet the big picture of his story is the most important thing that we can dedicate our lives to knowing and taking part in. And so that's what this series is meant to do, is to fix our eyes upon God himself as the main character of the Bible and understand how each each book points to his grand purposes of restoration. And so as we come to the book of Isaiah, let's first remind ourselves of the covenant history that, that Isaiah, as the prophet of God, sought to remind Israel about. Now, I call this God's strategy. Now, whenever, it's really important for us to know when we approach God's word, that whenever God defines a path, he gives us a signal that we should follow. And these signals are called the covenants. Now, uh, who's had an eye doctor's appointment recently? Anybody? Anybody? Wow. Okay. Y'all all have great vision. I have horrible vision, by the way. Um, 
In fact, I was so excited, I got a new pair of glasses. Uh, it's, it's my first new pair of glasses in several years. And I put them on, and I, I immediately texted Amanda. I was like, this ain't going to work. Because I was kind of hoping to, to wear them out. But my lenses are, are so curved, like they have to be so thick, that like basically when, you, when you're looking at me, you saw this outline of my face, and then you saw my cheeks. And like, it, it just looked really, really weird. And so when I go to the doctor, the, you know that little machine that they put over your face, right? And they're like, okay, is this better, worse, or about the same, right? And they, they, they do that. And they flip those lenses inside, and you're supposed to tell them which is clearer, right? Think of God's covenants in this way. That when God is moving, it's like he's flicking that lens, and he's saying, this should be a little bit clearer of what I'm doing. Does that make sense? That's the whole purpose of these things that we call covenants. It shows us what God is doing, it shows us who God is, and it shows us what God loves. And as a result, shows us who we are, shows us what we should be about, and shows us what we should love as well, because God is our creator, and he created us to reflect his image. And so God wants us to understand what he's doing. So I want you to write down these three passages somewhere in your notes. Maybe if you want to write them at the top of Isaiah uh, in your Bible, do that. These are three landmark covenants where God flicks the lens and helps us to see a little bit clearer about who he is, what he's doing, and where he's going. And you don't have to turn to these places, but just, just I'll summarize them for you. Genesis chapter 12 is God's encounter with Abraham. God's encounter with Abraham, he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of your family right now, this land of Ur, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you, and I will bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now this is important because God's blessing has been lost. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, the, the original task that God had given them it became distorted and corrupted, and, and, and essentially they were supposed to overflow God's blessing to all creation, but when sin entered the picture, God's blessing was, it was marred, it was corrupted, and in many ways it was lost. And so when God establishes this covenant with Abraham, he's saying, I want, I want to bring the blessing back. I want people to know me. I want the nations to come and join in and worship me. That is what God's, God's design for the covenant of Moses is. Well then, so that's the first clarification we get of what God is doing, who, what God is like, and where he's going. Second clarification we get is in Exodus chapter 19, when the people of Israel have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt, and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. Now we know that law to be the Ten Commandments, but a lot of people think that the Ten Commandments are like a ladder. And you climb up that ladder, and, and that's, that's what gets you to God. That's not what the Ten Commandments are for. The Ten Commandments, while they're an important part of civil society today, the Ten Commandments were in their original uh, giving, they were, to, for the people of Israel, they were meant to be the transforming uh, presence of God. That just like God promised the blessing would overflow from Abraham, God's saying to Israel, if you will seek me in this way, then you will find my blessing. And not only will you find my blessing, then you will overflow that blessing to the rest of the earth. And so in the worship of God, they were to be transformed. And as they were transformed, they would become a people of purpose. They would become a, a people who would bless the nations. But if you've been with us throughout the rest of our time, you know that Israel did not, they didn't do that. 
they weren't people of peace and they weren't people of justice. In fact, some of, their, some of the stories that we've read about even some of their leaders have been absolutely horrific, adulterers and murderers. People who do trivial things like complain, greedy people, power-hungry people. In a, in a sense, people just like us. And Israel, even though they've given, give, been given this covenant, God doesn't give up on them because God's covenants never depend on us. God commits his, himself to us. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the next one that gives us a little bit more clarification because in that covenant that God makes with David, he actually tells David, he says, the person who will truly bring my kingdom of peace and justice and restoration in this world is a future king that's going to come from your family. And so covenant with Abraham, covenant with Israel, covenant with David. These three covenants are the context in which Isaiah is communicating with the nation of Israel. And so that brings us to this book of Isaiah. This book of Isaiah. These 66 chapters have been called the miniature Bible. How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New Testament? Math real quick. 27. Okay. So get this. In the book of Isaiah, this is why it's been called the miniature Bible. In the book of Isaiah, you have 39 chapters of judgment and you have 27 chapters of hope for 66 chapters. Right? And so you, you're going to get the entire story of God through the lens of Isaiah's prophecies today through this message. And for Isaiah, just like for God, judgment and hope go hand in hand. Remember at this point, when Isaiah is prophesying, the northern kingdom has already fallen to the nation of Assyria, the, and God has allowed them to go into exile because they, they, were, they were a nation of rampant idolatry. Northern Israel was, was just a nature, nation of rampant idolatry. And so southern Israel, or that had Jerusalem and Solomon's temple in it, they were still, uh, they were still ruled over by the, by the lineage of King David. And so as the lineage of King David is coming and they're taking on leadership, some of the kings are good and some of the kings are bad. And it's in this context that Isaiah gives his warning to the southern kingdom of, of Judah to say, listen, God can still use us, but we're going to have to rid the nation of idols and we're going to have to worship him like he truly deserves to be worshiped. And that's kind of a summary of Isaiah's message. And he, he declares this message of judgment, but in the midst of judgment, there is hope. And so that's where I want to encourage you to take out your little graphic there, uh, because in this little graphic, you're going to... Um, you're actually going to, uh, we're actually going to follow along because it was just, this was too much to put on the slides. And as you can tell, our projector is a little uh, dim because our computer kind of blew up on us this week and, and, uh, and our projector has been going out. And so anyway, uh, look at this graphic and we're going to start at the top left. This graphic's broken down into uh, chapters 1 through 12, chapters 13 through 27, 28 through 39, and 40 through 48, I mean, and, then, uh, and then 56 through 66. And so we're just going to go through this and follow the storyline of Isaiah because there is a story in all of this. And so as you're, hit, as you're at that uh, chapters 1 through 12, uh, this is where Isaiah begins his message to the people of Israel. Isaiah, the son of Amos, in uh, this vision that he had concerning Judah. And this is a sum summary of chapters 1 and 2. God's going to purify Israel. God's going to purify Jerusalem. 
And what he's going to do is he's going to take this old nation that is rebellious and that is idolatrous, and in, in this purification, he's going to bring about a new Jerusalem. A new kingdom is going to come. And Isaiah is telling them, he's saying, you are the rebellious generation. And if you would repent, God would restore you. But most likely, you're not going to repent. And so God's going to purify us with fire. And it's at this point that Isaiah chapter 6, which is a, a chapter we all know, the chapter where King Uzziah has died and Isaiah sees the Lord and the temple high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. We know that passage just by itself, don't we? We've talked about the, the seraphim and the cherubim all uh, proclaiming holy, 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 and the threshold shaking. We know that passage, right? But do you know what that passage means? Once again, reflects on why we're doing this series. You see, just as God was going to purify Jerusalem, God encounters Isaiah to show him how he is going to purify Jerusalem by doing that same work in Isaiah's life. Isaiah chapter 6, when, when Isaiah sees the Lord, he's thinking, I'm a dead man. Because that's what happens when people enter the presence of the Lord. But the fact is, Isaiah didn't die, did he? In fact, what God did was he actually took a coal and he touched Isaiah's lips. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever touched something that's hot. But typically, typically, when something that's hot touches your flesh, it burns you. And it destroys those cells, and it makes it to where you don't have feeling in there anymore, right? And that's what Isaiah, Isaiah is thinking that this, this consuming fire that God is, this, this fire is going to destroy me. But instead of destroying him, it purifies him. See, this consuming fire is not for destruction for Isaiah. It's actually for a purpose, because God, wants, God has now purified him to go and speak the word to Israel, to Jerusalem. And that word is a word of judgment and a word of hope. Because the same thing that God did to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, God is now going to do to the nation of Israel or to the, to the kingdom of Judah. That that purification, that that consuming fire of God's judgment is not going to be for their utter decimation. It's actually going to be for their purification. And he's actually going to bring about a, a great new thing through that discipline. And so that's Isaiah chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 6. And then chapter 7 tells about this leader and king that God's going to send... And he is something called a holy seed. Now, just, so just imagine this. I, there's, a, there's a season of the year that I have a, a horticulturist friend who's at Auburn, and he, he always uh, posts pictures of it and, uh, on Instagram. And he'll say, he'll say, the season of crepe murder has begun, right? And we see these crepe myrtles, right? And then people just hack them off right at the top. And so I don't like it, it, he's a he's a he's a he's a really funny guy. One time Mandy asked me to cut the bushes back in our front yard and I uh, I took a sawzall and I just cut them down right at the bottom. And I thought that that's what she meant. Uh, and she said, I literally think you've killed every one of my bushes. I said, OK, wait, I'll ask Brian. And so I took a picture of him and I asked him, he's like, no, it's not really the right time of the year to do that, but it'll grow back. Right. They look destroyed. I mean, <laughs> Many, many remembers that day in horror. They looked destroyed. But if you go into our yard now, you, you can't even notice. Why? Because everything that was necessary for them to grow again was within. And even though it looked like I had utterly destroyed them with my black thumb, right, they still grew back. 
And I would say they're prettier. But anyway, the fact is, is that that's exactly what God's doing for Jerusalem. He's saying, listen, Assyria and this nation, Babylon, they're going to come one day and they're going to take an axe and they're going to take it to the tree of Israel and they're going to cut you down. But there's a holy seed that's going to grow out of that discipline and that judgment. And he will be, because it's a person, he will be filled with God's Spirit and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas passage, right? We go to Isaiah 7. The Christmas passage But it's all about what God is doing as Israel is in the face of their own destruction. God's going to bring about this leader who's empowered by God's Spirit. He's going to bring the new Jerusalem. He's going to bring God's kingdom of peace and justice to the earth. Because the fact is is that sin has not just corrupted Israel. Sin has corrupted all nations, which is what chapters 13 through 27 are about. Sin has just corrupted not just Israel. Israel's the epicenter, but they've, they've, they've... They've just utterly decimated. Sin has utterly decimated all of the nations surrounding Israel and indeed all of the nations of the earth. And so Israel is going to be an archetype of God's judgment that's going to come not just on them, but on the rest of the earth. And in chapters 13 through 23, he talks about the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. And then he he tells them that even out of this judgment, God is doing something new. And so in chapters 28 through 39, you see we're going really quickly here because this is how we get the flyover. Isaiah sees the leaders of Jerusalem. He's he's been prophesying to them, prophesying to them, prophesying to them. They haven't listened. In fact, they loved Isaiah so much that a lot of people think that Isaiah was actually literally sawn in half during the reign of Manasseh. He was not a very popular guy. And so Isaiah tells them in chapters 28 through 39... He looks at Israel's leaders and he says, what are you guys doing? Because they're making deals with all these surrounding nations. And they're making these alliances for political protection. And Isaiah looks at them and he says, do you not realize that you're betraying God? You're, you're, in one sense, you're going and you're worshiping at church. And you're declaring your faith in God. But then when you leave church, you're going down the road and you're making these alliances, and you're really showing where your faith is. And he says, need I remind you of King Hezekiah? King Hezekiah was a king over, over Judah. And Assyria, once they conquered the north, they came directly to the south because they said, we've got them now. And Hezekiah saw the massive army of Assyria, and he said, they've just conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel. There's no way that we can stand any chance And he did the only logical thing that he knew how to do, and that was he hit his knees. He repented. He cried out to the Lord. This is the the story that Isaiah tells them. He repented, and he cried out to the Lord. And as he cried out to the Lord, God did a miraculous work, and God saved them from the hand of their Assyrian enemies. And Isaiah looks at the leaders of Israel, and he says, but do you not remember? Do you not remember? What's going to happen is that they're going to come and the Babylonians are actually, you've, you've kind of brought them in and you've, you've gotten all buddy-buddy with them, but they're going to come and they're going to actually destroy you one day. And just a little over 100 years later, that prophecy came true. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the historical context, Babylon was a no-name empire when Isaiah said this. In fact, this was about 100 years after 100 years after Jonah 
had gone and preached in Nineveh, which was the capital there. It was the capital of Assyria at the time, and Babylon had conquered it. And those same people there are now, the generations later, they're coming and they're conquering Israel. And so Israel is thrown into exile, and that's the end of the first section, the first 39 chapters of, of Isaiah. But just like I mentioned earlier, there's this separation. The first 39 chapters are judgment, but then the next 27 chapters are all about hope. All about hope. How can hope come out of the midst of the exile that Judah had experienced? Well, chapters 40 through 67 peer into the future, and they talk about God's covenant faithfulness as a way of bringing hope. I, many of you have probably gotten cards that have Isaiah 40 on it, right? Many of you could quote it to this day, right? Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on, on, on wings like eagles. They will walk and not be faint. They will run and not be weary, right? That, that chapter marks the beginning of this time where Israel has been exiled. And Isaiah begins prophesying to them and saying, there's hope coming. There's hope coming. God's going to do a new work. And we think, well, what is that new work that's supposed to give them hope? Well, chapter 49, he basically identifies a person. In Isaiah's prophecy, a person comes to the forefront. And that person is a leader king who's called a servant. And in fact, God actually names this servant Israel. But it's not a nation, it's a person. And so there's kind of this confusing prophetic imagery that's going on here in Isaiah's prophecy. Because we think it's, it's, it's Israel the nation, but he says, no, this is a person, and he's a servant, and he's coming to restore Israel the nation and to be a light to the other nations. And this is where the story takes a strange turn. Because you get to Isaiah chapters 50 through 53, and Isaiah prophesies how this leader, Israel, is going to do this new thing for God. And we know these chapters well, right? We look at them typically around Easter. Because Isaiah 53 talks about the servant who's come to suffer, the suffering servant who's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, accustomed with grief. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Once again, taking these passages in context, what Isaiah is saying is there's going to come a day, Israel, where this leader king is going to come and he's going to serve God's purposes and God's kingdom for you on your behalf, but he's not going to do it by taking up a political throne. In fact, he's going to do it by offering his life to take on your sin and to take on my sin, to take on your rebellion and your idolatry because that's what you and all of the generations before you have been caught up in. It's obvious, Israel, you can't do it. You can't be God's kingdom because you're broken on the inside. And so this suffering servant is going to come and he's going to lay down his life. But the good news is, is he's going to rise again. Now listen, this is hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And every single one of these prophecies, they just point to him and say, there's a coming king, there's a coming king, there's a coming king. And it just bewilders us how Israel, the nation of Israel at the time, 
could live through and watch Jesus do these things and not see that he was the one that was being talked about in Isaiah, but they didn't. And so chapters 56 and 60 through 66 look even further into the future and talk about that after that leader king has been risen from the dead, after that suffering servant has given his life and then he's been resurrected, that he will bring about a new kingdom that is populated by people who have re repented and trusted in the work of the suffering servant on their behalf. And these people are commissioned by the suffering servant to go out as servants to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, declaring that his kingdom has come and that we can now be in a relationship with God because Emmanuel, God with us, is here. Now, does that all sound familiar? That is, that, th those servants that are being talked about, that's us. Why does it matter that we understand the story of God because it's not written about us, but if we understand what God's doing, He talks about us in it. Does that make sense? And now you see why Isaiah is called the miniature Bible, because it encapsulates the entire story of God, it seems. Now the great thing for us is that we're living in a time where all of these prophecies make sense to us, right? Right? That even though Isaiah said these things hundreds of years before Jesus came, about how he would come as the light of the world, about how he would be rejected by his own people, how he suffered and died for sins, and yet how he rose again to institute the kingdom of God, we hear that and it makes sense, right? Because that's what, that's what Jesus came to do. And that's our privilege. That's, our, that's the blessing that we have of being living in this age where, where Jesus has already risen again and He's ascended to the right hand of God. And now the Spirit of God indwells all of His children, all of God's children, so that we can be what God called us to be. We can be those servants who proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. We can be those who are called to tell people that God's kingdom has come into the different places in our lives. But there's just one application that I want to make from from this book today. Just as, we, as we've looked at this whole message of the book of Isaiah, as we've, we've understood what it says, we've understood how the, all these different pieces of the puzzle that we know that are familiar from different seasons of the year, we've put them together, right? And as we know about these things, here and now is the time for us to reconcile with the fact that there is a place of application for us to draw from the book of Isaiah. And to be quite honest with you, I think it's one of these places of application that the biggest thing that we've got to be faced with is that we don't believe it. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that, that every single one of you, if you're not struggling with, the, with believing the application, the point of truth that we're about to talk about, if you, if you don't struggle believing it now, that you have struggled with believing in the past. Because some, some of you have come to embrace this as your life. And I'm, I praise God for that. But I want every, every single one of us to be on the same page here. You see, here's what, we, here's what we've seen in our own... I mean, even Jason referenced it in his prayer. He said, Lord, when I think about my week... Now, I guarantee you that most of the people in this room could say just those words. When I, think, when I think about the week I've had, or maybe you're thinking, when I think about the week I'm about to have, right? There's something broken with the world. You think about what our community's experienced in the last several months. 
Guys, something's broken. Do you agree? This is yes, this is no. Something's broken. I mean, like, like, like let's, this real talk now. We're, 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 not on, we're not on the outline, okay? Something's broken. It, like, like, really broken. That we can hear these stories, and, and even in one sense, that we can hear these stories that are happening, these real events that are happening in our own community, and that we're not weeping today. There's something's not just broken out there, something's broken in us too, if we're to be honest with ourselves. Because, I mean, these things are horrible. I mean, Friday and Saturday, funerals, visitations for tragic, tragic things. And even, even we think about the fact that when you just look, that's local. You, you look beyond that, and things are broken all over the place. And so, here's what we haven't seen in the book of Isaiah. We haven't seen that the transforming power of the kingdom of God is going to come through little verses from Isaiah taken out of context, sent on cards to people who are hurting. We haven't seen that. You, you can write Isaiah 40 on a card, and that's, that, that's not meaningless, okay? But that's not how brokenness is going to be restored. We, we haven't seen any kind of understanding that the lives of God's people will be, will be marked by a half-hearted commitment to Him. We haven't seen that. In fact, Isaiah's told us that that's what's wrong is that God's people, they know what they, they should be doing, but they've turned their back on it. And they've chosen to define life on their own terms. Here's something else we haven't seen. We haven't seen any evidence that God has called our lives to be consumed by earthly things. Because if you notice, all of the hope came from fixing their eyes. Isaiah, fixing the eyes of the people on this eternal kingdom that is coming. And on this king, on this leader who would come and he would suffer. Right? Hope doesn't come by looking around you. Hope comes by looking to the truth of what God is doing. And if you don't know what God is doing, then I'm glad you're here today because that's exactly what we've talked about. And some of you may be surprised. And I want to encourage you that this is how you need to respond. You need to respond by believing that God wants to use you. You are the servant in Isaiah chapter 56 through 66. You are in the, in the kingdom of servants that are supposed to go out and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. These are not just the words of Jesus in the New Testament, but God wants you to see this solidly all throughout the story of his word that it's about you following him in full obedience and submission saying that this is my life, this is who I am, this is who God created me to be, these are the skills that he's given me, these are the gifts that he's given me, these are the passions that he's given me, these are the places in my life that I look at the world and I'm broken over what I see. God has called you to respond to those things that you've seen and to respond in a way where you become a part of the work of restoration instead of being part of the brokenness. Now, if you want to see what it looks like to be part of the brokenness, look to government. Because they don't know how to fix the problem. Because money can't fix heart issues. Right? 
They, they don't. It doesn't make sense to them. If, if we can't get a statistical analysis of this demographic over here and then throw money at it and it fix the problem, we don't, the government doesn't know how to fix anything. You say, well, where's the, where's the answer? Where's the remedy? Well, I would, I would tell you that it's in the family. And in the church family. That's where we're very intentional about that language. The family and the church family are the place where restoration springs forth. And it's the church family who is responsible for equipping the family so that as we impart truth and wisdom to our kids, that they don't see that this is just playtime, but that the worship of the risen Christ transforms you from the core of who you are and makes you into what this world really needs. And so that, that's, that's what I would just ask you in conclusion, is that you've seen the brokenness firsthand for yourself. You, you've experienced the horrors of cancer and mental illness and suicide and alcoholism and drug addiction. You've seen what poverty and welfare and all of these other things have brought to the human soul. And probably, a lot like me, you feel utterly helpless as to how you're supposed to answer that call. But you know why you feel that way? Because you're only part of the solution. The solution is the church. And being part of the church and unleashing the gifts that God's given you in the context of the ministries of the local church and the mission of the local church, taking that mission into your workplace and not being some super Christian who wears a Christian t-shirt every day and all that kind of jazz like that. That's not the way, that's not the way it's done, but it's by weeping with those who are weeping. It's by going to the hard places. It's by seeing the brokenness and in a loving way, drawing near, not to just put a quick band-aid, like a scripture band-aid of like Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good and they're called, called according to His purpose and hey, you're good? Okay, let's, I'll pray, I'll say a quick prayer for you, I'm, I'm leaving. No, it's, it's Christians are the ones who stick around. That, that's historically when Christians have made the biggest difference, when they see the brokenness and like, like first responders, they run into that brokenness and they stay there. Even at the sacrifice of themselves, they stay there. And so the, the, the glorious thing that the Lord's done in my mind, even as we study the book of Isaiah, and as, a, as I present this question to you today, the glorious thing is that, is that I'm not the answer. Praise God, I'm not the answer. And you individually are not the answer, but yes, we are the answer. We are the people that God wants to use to address the brokenness in our community, out those doors, so that they're not their problems, but they're our problem. That's what we are. And if that's not what you're living out and you're, you're, you're a part of this family, why not? What else does the world need from you? Do they need little Christian platitudes and Facebook posts about, about what verse you've read today? No. Are those bad? No. But God wants spirit-empowered people to run into the brokenness. And do you know what 
for most of you, you know, do you know what running into the brokenness looks like? Being faithful where God's already put you. Being, being a prayer warrior where God's already put you. This is, this, no, I'm, not, I'm not looking for you to articulate some kind of call to vocational ministry. You're in ministry where you are, whether you realize it or not. And through the book of Isaiah, you see your little piece there. God wants you to join with something that's much bigger than you, to be a part of something that will last far beyond you and that will make an eternal impact upon the people around you. We need people concerned for the souls of those around them more than anything else. People who are willing to leverage everything they've got to point people to the kingdom of God. We need people who are so convinced of where brokenness comes from in this life that they're willing to be intrusive in order to care for the people who look to be struggling. We need people who aren't afraid to sacrificially love and care for those who are hurting. We need people who recognize that Jesus is truly Lord of every part of their lives. That He has given you passions and skills. He cre he's created you to be broken about something in some area of this world so that you can use that brokenness to lovingly point people to Jesus. We've got to become the kind of people who define success as faithfulness to this task in every part of life. And so I ask you, is this what you want? Do you, do you want to join God on this mission? It started long before you. It doesn't depend solely upon you. But we will stand before God one day, give an account for what we've done with these truths today, based on what we've heard from His Word. And so I want to encourage you to jump in with both feet and take part. Be faithful. Commit to be faithful. Repent of unfaithfulness. That's probably where a lot of us need to start. Because maybe you, in your, in your life, you would confess, like me, that there have been some areas where you've just been lazy. You don't want to be challenged. You just want to come, and you just want to sit back and think that you're doing God a favor by showing up at church on a Sunday. It's got to be more than that. Why? Because the world needs more than that. And God has put you here, just like Esther, which we'll get to in weeks to come, God's put you here for such a time as this, in this moment. You. You. The only variable is you. Will you respond? Will you respond in faithfulness? My prayer is that you will. And today, if you, if we've talked about the kingdom of God. We've talked about the spirit of God. We've talked about submitting your life to Jesus and finding your giftedness. Listen, one of the ways that God's clarified my calling over the last year is that one of the biggest reasons that I'm here is because God wants me to encourage you. I'm not asking for a $54 million jet, okay? God, God's put me here to encourage you about how God wants to use you to impact the people around you. I've had, I've had people come to me and say, I don't like to talk to people. Okay, we can work with that, okay? <laughs> You, you, may, you may think that you can't glorify God in the job where you currently are. Yes, you can. Let me encourage you in that. You may be struggling with the people that you're working with. Okay, we can work with that. You may think, well, I've just retired. Like, I'm ready for, like, just some rest. God still wants to use you. <laughs> you, you never retire on God. And so if, if we've never had that conversation then maybe the way you need to respond to this invitation today is to say, I want to initiate that conversation with Ryan because I want to see what he sees in me. 
Because every single one of you, when, the, when the, your face flashes across my mind, you know what I see? I see opportunity. I see potential for the mission of God. And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you today that this time of invitation is for anybody who needs to trust Christ, yes. But if you've struggled, at least practically, with the unbelief that God doesn't want to use me, then repent of that today and believe that he does. And then pray for him to give you wisdom and insight about how he wants to use you. Use me as a resource so that I can encourage you about how God wants to use you. So let's all respond today in that way. Let's pray together.